In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, old Solomon wrote, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Did you get that? That is profound. Listen again. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. I see that in you all all the time. I'll be teaching and I'll say something funny and you'll just stare at me like... (laughs) No, a face may be sad, our countenance may be sad, our life may even be tough, but a heart can yet still be content, can be joyful... There's joy in the Lord no matter what the circumstances of life may be, even when we're going through hardship and sorrow and struggles. Solomon is very wise to say, hey, on the outward appearance, we may be really struggling, but inside, in Jesus, we can still be happy. He says, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so we open the book of Lamentations, which by its own title does not sound too encouraging, and yet, I think you'll be surprised. Of course, the book of Lamentations set in the Bible immediately after the book of Jeremiah. It's appropriately set there, following immediately on the heels of the heartbreak of the fall of Jerusalem, of the prophecies of Jeremiah. It is a symphony of sorrow in five movements. So the five chapters we see before us, it's a short book, we'll be done by the end of the month. But the five chapters that we see before us are each different elegies, if you will, or poems written by Jeremiah, mourning the tragic loss of Zion and of Judah. The English title for this, we have Lamentations, actually comes from the Hebrew word quinot. Quinote, if you're transliterating it and you want to write it down in your Bibles, it's Q-I-N-O-T-H, quinote. Now this word means to mourn or lament, and it's referred to in the Talmud as the Quinot. So the Jewish Talmud refers then to the book of Lamentations as the mourning or the lamentation, Quinot. However, in the Hebrew Bible, it is not called Quinot. It's referred to that way in the Talmud, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's called Ekah. Ekah, like many of the Hebrew books, it's taken from the very first word. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, the first word is how, and that is the word ekah. How? But ekah carries with it a, a mournful exclamation. It's ekah. Ah, how? The King James even translates it that way. Ah, how? You know, there's, there's pain in the, in the question. How can this be? How can this happen? How could you allow this Lord ekah? And of course, we see that in Lamentations 1, verse 1. We see it in chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of His anger. We see it toward the end in chapter 4, verse 1, where he writes, How how dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed, the sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. How? 
It's that painful exclamation. That's the actual title in the Hebrew Bible. There's also a Greek title for it I will throw out to you, and that is Thranoi. Thranoi in the Greek, uh, from the Septuagint, which you Bible students know is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, written about 300 years after the fall of Jerusalem, after uh, Jeremiah's day, written by the 70, that's what Septuagint means, and uh, the Greek word Thranoi in the Septuagint is wailings. The book of wailings. And Lamentations is the wailing wall of the Bible. You're to go to somewhere to pray, somewhere where your heart is heavy, somewhere where you're in a very sorrowful place. The book of Lamentations serves as that wailing wall. I mention the Septuagint because it opens with a statement that gives us some insight as to where Jeremiah perhaps may have been when he wrote Lamentations. And by the way, there was some dispute about the authorship of Lamentations, whether or not Jeremiah himself actually wrote it. That dispute was in the late 1800s. The guy who disputed has since been proven absolutely wrong. And so all Bible scholars, even liberal scholars, believe and accept that Jeremiah is the author of this book. But where was he and what was behind the writing of it? It's obviously filled with aching and pain and so probably written very soon after the fall of Jerusalem. Well, the Septuagint adds this little uh, clause at the very beginning before verse 1, which reads... And it came to pass, after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem made desolate, that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem. And the word over there implies overlooking. So he sat overlooking Jerusalem, weeping as he sat, and he began to write the book of Lamentations. And that is what uh, tradition tells us. Of course, the Bible tells us something a little different. It says when the city was invaded, Jeremiah chapter 40, you may recall this, Jeremiah was taken captive along with everybody else. And he was first taken up to Ramah. But there at Ramah, he was set free. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard of Nebuchadnezzar, sets him free, gives him a gift. Remember the I Love Nebuchadnezzar bumper sticker? Gives him something, we're not sure what, and sets him free. In Jeremiah 40, verse 5, he says, Go anywhere it seems right for you to go. And the Bible says, Then Jeremiah went to Mizpah, where Gedaliah was governor there. But we think that he made a side trip. En route to Mizpah, went a little out of his way, headed south, down to Jerusalem, for in late 586 or perhaps early 585 B.C., Jeremiah goes back to the smoldering heap that was the once glorious city of Zion. And there overlooking Jerusalem, looking at his beloved city, he wept and wrote lamentations. Where exactly? Possibly, some think, on a hillside east of the city, there on the Mount of Olives. Which, even to sit on the Mount of Olives today, gives you a broad view of Jerusalem. Some of you will see that view in a few months, Lord willing. What's interesting to me, however, is that 600 years later, another prophet on the same mount, the Mount of Olives, wept for Jerusalem. Luke 19.41 tells us when Jesus approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, 
But now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. How history repeats itself. Jeremiah weeping for Jerusalem just after it fell. Now Jesus weeping for Jerusalem just a few years, 30 or so years before. It would fall the second time. The temple destroyed the second time. And you'd think, when will they learn? Or maybe better, when will we? When are we going to get it? I mentioned Jesus weeping on the Mount of Olives in a similar way perhaps that Jeremiah wept on the Mount of Olives because I want you to understand, and as I read this and thought this through, the sorrow here is more than the sorrow of Jeremiah. It is the sorrow of the Spirit of Christ. It is the broken heart of God that we will read in these elegies, in these funeral dirges, if you will. Jeremiah is inspired by the Spirit of God. These are not just loose and random mournings by a man who is upset over his loss. They go much deeper than that. And I'm going to show you a few things here to point this out. But it's the Spirit of Christ who inspires the mournful sorrow of the book of Lamentations. And I remind you again that godly sorrow is good sorrow. Not a bad thing to be sorrowful in the Lord. The house of mourning, better than the house of feasting. And I believe we'll see that more clearly as we go through over the next month. Now again, these are not random funeral dirges. There is a structure to the sorrow. I'm going to get technical with you just for a few minutes here before we get into actually verse by verse through chapter 1 tonight because there's some things in the technical writing of these poems that are pretty stunning. I was surprised and impressed. These are five beautifully organized songs written in the highest form of Hebrew poetry. Some of the most beautiful that is written in the entire Hebrew Scriptures. Jeremiah wasn't just scrawling out gut-wrenching grief on tear-stained pages in a diary and somehow someone got a hold of it. No, this is inspired stuff. As all the Scripture is inspired. But I want you to be aware of three things. You might jot these down. Again, these are a little technical, but I'll explain why I need to tell you about them in a moment here. The first one is what they call the chiasm balance. The chiasm balance, that's C-H-I-A-S-M, never heard of the word before yesterday. Okay, The chiasmic or chiasm balance, what a chiasm is, is in poetry or literature, it's an inverted parallel relationship between passages. How does that work? I'll explain. Chapter 1 and chapter 5 focus on the people. Chapter 2 and chapter 4 focus on the Lord. And chapter 3, the centerpiece of the whole thing is the pinnacle of the poems. It's Jeremiah's response to everything else that's going on. So you have the people in 1 and 5, the Lord in 2 and 4, and Jeremiah's response to all of this set in the middle, kind of at the apex of the whole book. And you'll see this. We apex in chapter 3. Some of the most marvelous comfort and encouragement is in chapter 3 of the book of Lamentations. And I'm talking about in all Scripture. Some of the best comfort is right there. Without this book... Without this book, you know what we would miss? We would miss, and I'm going to preach on it probably on Sunday coming up, that the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's at the heart of lamentations. And so perhaps then Solomon was right. A little godly sorrow is a good, good thing. 
So there's this chiasmic balance. Chapter 1 gives us the desolation of the daughter of Zion. Chapter 5 gives us the prayerful desire of the daughter of Zion. Chapter 2 gives us the devastating judgment of the father. Chapter 4 gives us the defensible judgment of the Father, why He should judge as He did judge. And chapter 3 is the demonstrative response of the prophet caught in between. That's a chiasm. Okay, So the chiasmic balance, it's fascinating. Wouldn't have known that. But there is inspiration here. There is high poetry going on. Secondly, the limping meter... The limping meter, as in limping, stumbling along. The Hebrew meter of lamentations is a very specific word. It's called quinah, which is related to quinote, that Hebrew word for lamentations. Quinah is a style of poetry that intentionally writes the second half of the verse with one beat less than the first half of the verse. So as you read it, you limp from verse to verse. Now, we're not going to experience that because we're reading it translated into English. But if we heard it in Hebrew, you begin to notice that every second half of the verse is short a beat from the first half. And it's on purpose because it's supposed to give it that that shuffling, kind of limping feeling. And I need you to remember that, for just a moment at least, that these dirges limp. They limp along. Thirdly, there is an amazing acrostic design to the Lamentations. You know what an acrostic is. It's, it's letters that are, or poetry that's based on the letters of either a word or the alphabet. In this case, it's the alphabet. It's the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You might notice just flipping through that the chapters all have 22 verses. The Hebrew alphabet, alphabet has 22 letters. Now, if you get to chapter 3, you go, uh, Rick, no, you're wrong. There are 66 verses. Well, how does that work? Well, chapters 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 each contain 22. Chapter 3 has 66. The Hebrew alphabet has, again, 22 letters. Chapters 1 through 4 are all written acrostically, beginning with Aleph, ending with the Tav. Chapter 3, the most important dirge among the five and the apex does this with every three verses. So every three verses begins with a a letter and then moves on to the next letter for three verses, next letter for three, and all the way through. So 66 divided by three, 22. Okay, are you with me? Okay, good. So so it's written that way. And you might ask, well, why, why the acrostic form? This is supposed to be lamentations, right? I was a little stunned when I saw that because I thought, well, if, if Jeremiah is sitting up on the Mount of Olives or, or on a hillside looking over Jerusalem and his heart is pouring out, he's really going to stop to take time to make it, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Boy, I'm sad and woe is me. I mean, how is this working? But it is intentional. It's intentional. It is inspired writing. Why the acrostic form? Well, the easiest reason is so the Jewish people could remember it. Acrostics are mnemonic devices, memory devices. And so they could read this and the children could be taught this and the older people could hear it and remember kind of acrostically. Let's see, ABC, what was the, okay, what was the third one? Oh yeah, it's that letter. And remember how, how the lamentation goes. But it's also so they could remember, I believe, the full extent of their sin from A to Z. Their sin is complete. And the completeness of their sin is seen in the rubble of Jerusalem. And so there's implication here 
of the fullness of these things. Now, there are two little problems with the acrostic design. I told you I was going to get technical. Here's the problem. Again, if we were reading these acrostics in Hebrew, we would notice that chapters 2, 3, and 4 has the Hebrew letter ayin switched with the letter pei. Ayin and pei are backwards. Chapter 1 has it what we would consider correctly. If you're reading through the Hebrew alphabet, you come first to pei, and then to ayin is the next one. But in chapters 2, 3, and 4, those two letters in the middle are switched up. Now, in ancient Hebrew, it doesn't really matter because for whatever reason, the alphabet can be written either way. Which would be a little weird for us. It would be like saying A, B, C, D, F, G, H, O, J, K, Elemento, Elemento, what is it, Elemento P. (laughs) And we would say instead L, N, M, O, P. And that's okay in the Hebrew alphabet. You can write it either way. Ayin, Pe, or Pe, Ayin. But Jeremiah intentionally does the acrostic both ways in Lamentations. Chapter 1 He does it what we would consider the correct way. Chapter 2, 3, and 4, he flips it. He switches it. And I think that's for another little more interesting reason. In the Hebrew gematria, more technical talk, gematria or gematria is the assigning of numerical value to the Hebrew letters. The Hebrew letter ayin stands for the number 70. So all of a sudden in chapter 2, 3, and 4, he puts the number 70, he puts that letter first. It would catch your attention. You're reading through and go, oh wait, Ayin before pay. Well, I, I guess we could do it that way. It's not the normal way to do it. Why is Ayin there? And you're looking at Ayin and you realize 70. How long is the captivity? 70 years. So the 70-year captivity highlighted by the simple switching of two letters in the poetry. And I believe that's probably what's going on there. One more thing about the acrostic design. While chapter 5, the final song, still has 22 verses, the acrostic pattern is broken. There is no acrostic pattern. Chapters 1 through 4 has it. Chapter 5, 22 verses. Not in alphabetical order. In fact, it leaves it out completely. Some think... Because at this point in writing the Lamentations, Jeremiah was unable to think clearly, to write clearly. He's just weeping and writing everything that comes down. So he stays to 22 verses, but he can't remember even the alphabet because he's too upset. And I don't think so. That's not how the inspired Spirit of the Lord works. Chapter 5, it's interesting, of the five chapters, is the people's prayerful plea for mercy. It's a prayer of repentance. Repentance breaks the judgment. And in the same way now that the acrostic is broken, is no longer being used, it's unnecessary, the judgment from A to Z is over because repentance breaks that. That's how it works in our lives. Repentance breaks judgment. Repentance frees us from our sin from A to Z and brings us into the freedom of Christ. We're no longer bound by those things. We're no longer bound by the law, but we are free in Christ Jesus. And the people begin to pray, or at least within the the lamentation, it's a prayer of repentance, seeking mercy, seeking forgiveness, and that breaks the judgment of sin. By the way, I mentioned the limping phraseology, or the way the limping thing moves, the quinah. Chapter 5 doesn't have a single limping verse. 
The limping is over by the end of chapter 4, and as you come into the prayer for mercy, it no longer limps along. Why is that? Well, because repentance gives strength to our legs. Repentance brings us into strength. We no longer limp. We walk. We run. We're even going to fly. We don't limp along in the Spirit. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that's something we need to understand. As followers of Jesus, we are not limping. We're not struggling just somehow to survive. How to keep our heads above water. How we're going to make it from one day to the next. We are in Christ Jesus. No limping. No need to limp. It's like Tom Hanks once said in the League of Their Own. There's no crying in baseball. There's no limping in Christianity. And you might say, well, I'm limping. That's because you've taken your eyes off Jesus. When my eyes are on Jesus, I don't limp. I fly, I run, I at least walk. Because the strength to walk comes from eyes fixed on the Lord, not from how I'm doing in my life. We don't limp. Isaiah 40.31 says, Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. I'm on the wind, man. I'm going wherever He wants to go. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Recognize that. Walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. Why am I carrying out the desire of the flesh? Maybe you're not walking by the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, which means according to the Spirit's intentions, according to God's desires, according to His truth, that's how we're called to walk, not according to my desires, my wants, my needs. So in the structure and the organization of Jeremiah's Lamentations, we see an amazing blend of passion and wisdom. Of, of spirit and truth, of, of the thoughtfulness of scriptures. It's not just emotion gushing out, though that is there, but it's informed by the wisdom of God and by the comfort of His Spirit. Well, let's take a look. Chapter 1, verse 1. Ka. Ah, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations. She has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. Her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. And she herself is bitter. You're going to notice this when we get down to verse 6, but Jeremiah uses a personification for Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1, and he'll use it several times in chapter 2, and that is he will refer to Jerusalem as, or to the Jewish people as, the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion. And he kind of holds on to that picture, referring to Jerusalem as she, or referring to the Jewish people as she, the daughter of Zion, Zion being Jerusalem. 
It's going to use the phrase six times, five times in the second elegy. And again, it speaks of the people of Judah and Jerusalem is mother. She is mother to the people. But the mother is now a widow, bereft of both husband, the Lord, and bereft of her children. The mother is alone and sits desolate. The princess is now nothing more than a slave. Oh, Jerusalem, where are your friends and lovers now? Friends and lovers, speaking of the surrounding nations to which the people kept trying to run to find rescue from Babylon, and none of that helped. Lovers, speaking of the idolatry that the people ran off to have an affair with. And where are they now? They just leave her to her own destruction. By the way, that's the way of the world. That's how our world works. We have our loving Lord Jesus. We can run to Him or we can run to the things of the world. And if we engage in and run to the things of the world, we will be left desolate. It happened in 586. It happened in 8070. When are we going to learn? Run to the Lord and find security and salvation. Run away from the Lord in any direction and you will be left desolate. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, I don't think I've ever called you all that, have I? Okay, James, gutsy guy. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the Lord is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't play both sides. You're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. Make the choice. John writes in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I will confess to you that is a tough verse. Because there are things in this world that I love. Things I like to do. Pleasures I like to engage in. Things eye candy that attracts my attention. And we are all that way. Don't kid yourself. Every one of us have something in this world that we love. Don't love the things of the world. Love the Father. And then view the world as Father views the world. So the daughter of Zion, a princess, no more, a desolate widow, rather than going up to Jerusalem rejoicing, the roads to Zion are deserted. I want you to imagine for a moment. When Jeremiah was pulled out of Jerusalem, the battle was raging. The fires were going up. It was intense. There was a cacophony. It would have have been a horrible sight as he's being dragged out of there and off to Ramah. But now he comes back. And even taking the road up to Jerusalem, there would have been an eerie silence. As the Bible describes it, a desolation. The Hebrew word in verse 4, she herself is bitter, is marar, and it means suffering, anguish. And he mentions here, no one comes to the appointed feasts. Jeremiah, no doubt, would remember the people marching up to Jerusalem, singing the songs, the Psalms of Ascent, going up for the great feast days. And those feast days would include the gates decorated and beautiful, the priests hard at work, the virgins. What's the reference to the virgins about? Well, the virgins would be singing and dancing, reflective of the joy of the holidays, and now their voice is silenced. 
Psalm 68, 24 says, They've seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, and the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Oh, it's a picture of joy on the feast days in Jerusalem. And now Jeremiah, remembering this as he writes this first elegy, is coming up to Jerusalem. And there are no dancing tambourines. There are no priests at work. The gates are torn down. Everything is desolate. Singing and dancing virgins also is reflective of Jewish weddings. Maybe you heard about this last week. A limousine caught on fire in San Francisco. Four people and the driver got out, mostly unharmed, some smoke inhalation, but five people burned to death in the limousine. Four bridesmaids and a bride. And I thought, what an awful tragedy. What a terrible thing. And I read here that her virgins are afflicted, and I thought, five people in a burning limousine, hundreds of thousands in a burning city. That's what Jeremiah comes back to, is this empty desolation, this rubble. As he's writing and he's he's contrasting that that once beautiful city with all the joy and the feast and the, and the sorrow and emptiness that is there now. Verse 5, he goes on, he says, Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief. Note that, the Lord has caused her grief. Why? Because of the multitude of her transgressions. That's the first why that we see in the, in the Lamentations. We'll see more of that. There is a reason for this. The hand of the Lord caused this, but it was caused because of the transgression, the sin of the people. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. And that's the first time we see the phrase, the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the adversary and no one helped her. The adversary saw her. They mocked at her ruin. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction for the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. The ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregation. That is the pagan nations. Verse 11, all her people groan seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. I am despised, and that's not the voice of Jeremiah. That's the voice of the daughter of Zion. That is Jerusalem crying out. Now I think the key phrase here is in verse 9 where it says she did not consider her future. Translation, they were living in the moment. 
Or better, they were living for the moment. Living for the moment. Actually, living in the moment is not a bad thing. I was thinking earlier while we were worshiping, I just want to be here in this moment. And then I was thinking while we were praying, oh, I I just want to stay right here in this moment. Now that we're in Bible study, I just want to stay right here in this moment. And I encourage you, a little side note, when you come into fellowship, you may have one of those three aspects of what we do, especially midweek, that pings a little more with your heart than the others. You may love the worship, or you may love the prayer, or you may love the Word, and maybe the the other aspects aren't as important to you, but there's one that really tugs at your heart, and, and every time we finish, you just go, oh, could we just go five more minutes right there? And you're living in that moment. And I encourage you that in every moment that we are with the Lord, whether we are worshiping Him or praying to Him or studying His Word, be in the moment. But living in the moment is different than living for the moment and that's what the people were doing. She did not consider her future. She only considered the next feast. She only considered the party that she was involved in. She only considered her immediate security and didn't think about the future whatsoever. Isaiah 22, verse 12 said, Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts has called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Indeed, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Right now, it's party time. Right now, let's just live for the moment. Or as that band, I forget the name of the band even. Loverboy. Back in the 80s. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? That was the whole thing. Just get to the weekend. And then by the end of the weekend, everybody's trying to go back to work because they're no good on their own, as Bill Cosby said. You know? I have to come back here because when I'm on my own, it's just not good. Working for the weekend, living for the moment. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.32, quoting from Isaiah, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and drink, for tomorrow we die. I am down with that, Paul says. If there's no resurrection, yeah, of course we should be partying and not worrying about tomorrow, not even thinking about it. Live for right now, if there's no resurrection. Ah, but there is a resurrection. And so honestly, living for the moment is one of the most foolish things we can do rather than considering our future. She did not consider her future. She did not think about what was coming. The issue of eternity. Our greatest concern is not the enemy. You know that? He's always lurking about. He's always seeking ways to trip us up. He's always busy about his business, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not our greatest concern. Our greatest concern is not our present comfort either. Our greatest concern is the issue of eternity. An honest appraisal of where we are going. Of being right with the Lord, a rightness that only comes through Jesus. That's concern A number one. Because if that concern isn't met, if that concern is is pushed aside, is ignored, then all other concerns are going to be absolutely meaningless. There's coming a day. That's the big one. Did you realize that the primary purpose of the Gospel is preparation? That's what the Gospel is here for. To prepare us for what's coming. To ready us, to cause us to consider and be prepared for our future. 
Paul, among the armaments of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Not just with the gospel of peace, but with the preparation that comes by it. You don't march into, into battle without shoes. You make sure your shoes are good. The boots better be right. Your socks. Right? Naval personnel. Well, you guys are on boats. You're not marching, so it doesn't matter. I'm kidding. I know you march. I get it. A lot more than I do. Boots and socks take care of your feet. And the Bible says the gospel of peace is the preparation of your feet to march. Why? Because the gospel brings my peace knowing where I'm going, knowing my ultimate end. Therefore, I can march through anything. Because I'm prepared. I know where I'm going to end up. My feet are covered. That's what the gospel does. It prepares our future. Not to limp, but to walk, to run, to fly. But the daughter of Zion is living for the moment. Deuteronomy 32 verse 29 said, Would would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. This is what Moses said way back in the day. I wish the people would think about their future. Think about what's coming. Prepare. They have plenty of time, by the way, to do that. In fact, I've got to show you something here. We've got to pause for a minute. The Spirit, through Jeremiah, works a previous ancient wisdom into the very fabric of the Lamentations. And I want to show you how. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the parallel passage to the entire book of Lamentations. Because in Deuteronomy 28, Moses is there between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and he's given off the blessings and the curses. And as he does so, in the latter part of Deuteronomy 28, he goes back to curses, and he begins to lay out these curses. And Jeremiah, by inspiration of the Spirit, draws off those curses throughout the five laments. I want to show you how he does these. You might want to jot them down in your margins. Um, I'll just give it to you, and then you can go back and, and look at it. But in the margins as we go, I'll read the Lamentations verse and then I'll tell you what the parallel verse is in Deuteronomy 28. And if you want to jot it down, it would be a good idea. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, and I'm just going to give you snippets because there's a lot of these. Lamentations 1, 3, she dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. Deuteronomy 28, 65. Moses prophesied, among those nations you shall find no rest. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. Deuteronomy 28.65 Remember what Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 30, long about verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust you're saved. But you would have none of it. This goes all the way back. There is rest for you, but you're not going to find it in the nations. You're not going to find it, brothers and sisters, in the world. Only in the Lord. Lamentations 1 verse 5 tells us her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper. Well, Deuteronomy 28 verse 44, Moses said of his enemies, he shall be the head and you will be the tail. Your enemies are going to be the boss. Lamentations 1 5, the latter part of the verse, for the Lord God has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversaries. Moses said in Deuteronomy 28, verse 32, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. While your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. How did Moses know that? 
I mean, these things play out literally. There's one coming up that's going to disgust you, but it is amazing how specific it is. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 6. Her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture and have fled without strength before the pursuer. We know Zedekiah and his guys fled out the king's gate and tried to run away and were captured down there in the, in the region around Jericho. Deuteronomy 28, verse 25. Moses said, you will flee seven ways before them. You're going to run in all directions trying to get away from this. Moses prophesying of the fall of Jerusalem? Amazing. Lamentations 1, verse 18 tells us the Lord is righteous for I have rebelled against His command. Hear now all peoples and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Deuteronomy 28 verse 41. You shall have sons and daughters but they will not be yours for they will go into captivity. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 15. Jumping ahead a little bit. It reads, all who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? Deuteronomy 28 verse 37 reads, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. Down in verse 20 of Lamentations 2. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? I told you a disgusting one was coming. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 53. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. And cannibalism did, in fact, take place inside the walls of Jerusalem during the siege of Babylon. You think that's bad? There's one worse. Lamentations 2.21 says, On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. Deuteronomy 28.50 tells us a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Just as prophesied, it took place. Remember, Deuteronomy is the prophecy. Lamentations, Jeremiah is talking after the fact. So that's the history. Here's the prophecy. And side by side, we see how this works. Lamentations chapter 4. Skip on ahead. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 10, tells us the hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Deuteronomy 28, 56 and 57 tells us, The refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes and toward her son and daughter and toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs and toward her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. And it happened. And we need to understand how absolutely desperate this was. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 2. Our inheritance, he writes, has been turned over to strangers. Our houses to aliens. Deuteronomy 28, verse 30 says, You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. 
We're losing our homes. We're losing our inheritance. Moses said that's exactly what's going to happen. That's the curse that will come upon you if you don't think about your future. So it's not like Judah didn't have time or Israel didn't have time to consider all the things that Moses wrote in Torah. They studied Torah. They went through the law. They tried to figure it out, tried to understand it. And by the way, when they came back from captivity among Ezra and the leaders, they studied even harder. And for 400 years, they studied and studied and studied Torah and they still missed it and would be taken captive again in AD 70. Something not quite getting through. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There's no rest for us. And again, repeating Deuteronomy 28.65, Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 10. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. Deuteronomy 28, verse 48. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in lack of all things. And let me just point out, Lamentations 5.10 is interesting in its wording. Our skin has become as hot as an oven. We being on this side of the Holocaust can see the application of that prophetic word. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 11 says, They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the city of Judah. Deuteronomy 28, verse 30, the first part of the verse says, You shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 12, Princes were hung by their hands, elders were not respected. And again, Deuteronomy 28, 50, A nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. And finally, Lamentations 5, verse 18, Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. Deuteronomy 28, 26, Moses said, Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Speaking again of the desolation. So obviously, Jeremiah, at least the Spirit, brought to Jeremiah's mind Deuteronomy 28 and the curses. And as he weaves this poetry, these things are finding their way in in terms of fulfillment. And all of this, again, because they did not consider their future. The very future Moses himself warned before they came into the land. Here's the deal, gang. We have a Deuteronomy 28, by the way. It's called the book of Revelation. And it amazes me how many Christians won't read it or deal with it because it's too hard to understand. And in so doing, what we're saying is we don't want to think about the future. We don't want to consider what may be coming. We'd rather just leave that to God and we'll go about living for the moment. And God has given us the exact destination. He's given us the journey. He's laid it all out before us. Here's what's coming. Here's what's going to happen. Paul talks about it extensively in his writings. Jesus prophesies of it again and again. And the reason why I refer to the end times and the last days so often, aside from the fact that I believe we're in them right now, is because we are supposed to be considering our future and looking forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in the first half of the lament, Jeremiah talks about the daughter of Zion. In the second half, she poetically speaks for herself. This is the voice of the daughter of Zion, or the voice of Jerusalem speaking. Verse 12, Is it nothing to you all who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He sent fire into my bones and it prevailed. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate, faint all day long. The yoke of my transgressions is bound. By His hand they are knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Jeremiah sees the hand of God in all of this. And in just four verses, he refers to the Lord 11 times. He did it. He did it. The Lord's hand. It's the Lord. He's the one. He's the one bringing it. Again and again, the Lord is is the one whose hand is punishing all this sin. But also, not only is it the Lord's hand doing the punishing, but the daughter of Zion speaks here and owns the sin. She's owning it. It's my sin. I did this. I am just being paid in full for what I deserved. This is the punishment that I brought on myself. And I read that and I thought, you know, someone's got to own the sin. Someone's got to take ownership for the sin. And praise God, in our case, believers in Jesus, the Son of God, took ownership for the sin. In Lamentations, it's the daughter of Zion saying, it's my sin. In our case, the Son of God says, no, 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 it's my sin. Can you wrap your heart around that? Jesus Christ saying, no, 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 that's not Rick's sin. That's my sin. That's not Donna's sin. That's my sin. He owns it. Glenn was talking earlier today about reading 1 Timothy 2 and choking on a specific word. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. He's our ransom. We're sitting there at Wendy's. I know a shocker to those of you who have had lunch with Glenn. (laughs) We're sitting there and and even as he's telling me about tearing up that morning or this morning in devotional, he starts tearing up. I'm like... Glenn, we're in a fast food restaurant, dude. Don't start crying on me. <laughs> He's tearing up over the word ransom. And his own words, Glenn said, do you realize how ugly that is? I mean, think about the word ransom. How do we use the word ransom? Well, it's for someone who's been kidnapped. It's payment to save their life. It's payment to find them, to, to bring them back. It's an ugly thing. And Jesus' very life became ransom for us. He owned our sin. He bought it outright. He paid for every last sin of my life and yours. And it's remarkable. As the daughter of Zion owns her sin, the Son of God owns mine. Note this also in verse 15. It refers to a time past, an appointed time, when the Lord has trodden as in a wine press. But that time past is also a time that is future. 
an appointed time when the Lord will trod as in a wine press. Revelation 14.19 tells us, The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And you Bible students know that 200 mile distance is the run of the valley of Megiddo where Armageddon, Har-Megiddo takes place. And that is a future event of the treading out of the fierce wrath of God in the winepress. Revelation 19.15, speaking of Jesus, from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Gang, that is future. He tread the winepress in the past. At the appointed time, He will tread the winepress again, this time not just for Israel, not for Judah, but for the entire world. At that time yet future, the winepress will be trod by the feet of the Son of God. Who, by the way, has every right to tread out the winepress. Why is that? Because He poured out every last drop of His blood to save us from it. Jesus does not want us to be in that winepress. He does not want us to be judged. Moses leveled all of the curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 because his heart was to say to the people, don't let this happen. Consider your future. Don't go there. Do what needs to be done for the blessings to come, not the curses. And here we have the same thing where we look in Revelation, we see what's coming, we know what's going to happen to this world and everything in it, and Jesus says, put your trust in me. Believe in me now and you will overcome. Will we listen? Verse 16, For these things I weep, my eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands. There is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that the ones around about him should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them all. Jesus said in Matthew 5.4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the problem is the mourning taking place here is after the fact. It's too late. The lamentation, the mourning of Jeremiah, even the, the poetic mourning of the daughter of Zion, it's too late. She should have mourned before when she had opportunity to do so. But now there is no comfort. And by the way, this is the third time that the lamentation, this first elegy, mentions no comforter. Including verse 9, and we see it here in verse uh, 16 and 17. No comforter. No comforter. Who's the comforter? The Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 14, 15, and 16, some of your translations say the helper, the word, the parakletos, is the comforter. The Comforter is the Holy Spirit. And if you deny the Comforter, you deny yourself comfort. I know that's elementary. (laughs) But it is amazing how many believers in Jesus deny the Comforter. Now, I don't believe the Holy Spirit works like that. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is actively involved in my life. Well, I mean, help me understand the Word of God. I get that. And, And, you know... Uh, I get that he, you know, he resides in me, but, but, but the spiritual gifts, no, no. That doesn't happen. 
the Holy Spirit actually exerting His His influence, His power in the world today. Now, I just I don't believe that happens. So you deny the Comforter and deny yourself comfort. And it's as simple as that. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Don't quench the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? How do we grieve the Spirit? How do we quench the Spirit? By not believing. By not receiving the Spirit of God. Keeping Him at arm's distance because, boy, I'll tell you what, those charismatics, those Pentecostals, those Holy Spirit wackos, <laughs> they're too weird and I can't go there. So we'll just keep the Holy Spirit at a safe distance from the rest of us. We won't really believe in the power stuff because that could lead us down that road. And Rick's going to be a revivalist and it's going to be weird. I'll have to go to another church. And so we keep the Holy Spirit at arm's length and it grieves Him. And it quenches His work in our lives. Why would we do that? Why would anyone push away the very one sent for our comfort? Well, Lamentations 1 verse 9, if you look back, tells us why Judah did it. Two reasons. Verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. In other words, she was sinning. And she did not consider her future. Two ways guaranteed to quench the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and to grieve Him is unclean uh, skirts and unconsidered futures. Put off where you're going. Don't think about that. And don't worry about being washed. Don't worry about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Push that off. Keep your skirts dirty. And you quench the Spirit. Listen to Paul's take on the comfort that is ours in the Spirit of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Okay, right there, if, if I wasn't a Christian and I read that, I'd go, huh? What are you talking about? Sufferings of Christ. Oh, that's, that's part of the deal. And they are ours in abundance. So also, our comfort is abundant through Christ. Paul says, but if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. We suffer together. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We share in the comfort of the Spirit, which is ours in abundance, and so the sorrows, the sufferings, are ours in abundance as well. But no matter what the sorrows are, the comfort is always there. Now listen. The biggest problem with pushing away the comforter is not that you yourself will not receive comfort. Oh, that's true, you won't. But it's also that someone else will not receive comfort that they might receive if the comforter was active in your life. Well, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of the Holy Spirit. Okay, then you're going to leave someone else without comfort that you yourself could give to them by the power of that same Spirit. I really think that perhaps our whole understanding of following Jesus is messed up because of our selfishness. Because of the way we we tend to suck everything into ourselves and think, how does this bless me? How does this benefit me? How does this make my life better? And that's the filter through which we come to the Scriptures and and through which we come to God in prayer. How is this going to work for me? 
And Paul flips it over and says, no, 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 you don't understand. If you are suffering, it's so that someone else can be comforted. If you are comforted, it's so that someone else can also receive that same comfort. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's so that you can give that same gift to others. It's so you can serve and minister. You see how this all works? It's getting us out of our own heads and into the work of the Spirit, which is never a selfish thing. It's about others. Verse 18. The Lord is righteous. Who's saying that? The daughter of Zion is. After the fact, Jerusalem in shambles crumbled to the ground and the phrase comes out, the Lord is righteous. For I have rebelled against His command. Hear now all peoples and behold my pain or that word also means my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore their strength themselves. The daughter of Zion, listen to this, says, Behold my pain. Look at my pain. Take a look here. Look at my sorrow. The Hebrew word there for sorrow and or pain is makob. And makob means mental or emotional anguish. And so now at this point in this first lament, the daughter of Zion says, Look, behold, drop what you're doing, stop what you're doing, and look at my sorrow. It's kind of weird. Why is the daughter of Jerusalem calling for this? Gang, it is the declaration of her devastation. In other words, the daughter of Zion is the witness of warning in and of herself. Saying, the Lord is righteous, I have rebelled, this is the outcome. That the whole world could see this. Behold, look! Why did Jerusalem fall in 586? Well, it was punishment for her sins. But now something else is coming out that we maybe didn't realize before. The example of the daughter of Zion for the whole world. Here's what happens if you rebel against God. This is what takes place if you reject your only Savior who is patient and kind and and filled with long-suffering, waiting years and years and years and years allowing Israel to have opportunity to repent and turn it around, and they don't. So Jerusalem falls, and now the daughter of Zion is saying, look at me. Look at my devastation. This is the problem of all humanity. The daughter of Zion, Israel, throughout history has said, look at me. This is the example of what happens when a people rebel against God. Look at me. And you know what the world does? We look the other way. We don't look. We don't pay attention. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they, that is Israel, also craved. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 These things happen to them as an example and they are written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The painful testimony of the daughter of Zion to the world today. Look at me. Look at history. Look at what happened. But is anyone looking? No, what the world is doing right now is rather than looking at the pain and the anguish and the suffering of the Jewish people throughout history, there's anti-Semitism. I mean, that's amazing. Talk about a work of the devil. 
Rather than looking with compassion and saying, okay, I get it. God chose these people. He's working in and through these people. He brought Messiah through them. He gave us His Word by primarily, with the exception of one or two, by Hebrew writers. We owe them a great debt. Look at how they suffered when they rejected their God and Father. Can we learn from that? But the world does not want to learn. And so the first lament concludes with the daughter turning her attention to her father. They have heard that I groan. There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my calamity. They are glad that you've done it. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed that they may become like me, says the devastated daughter of Zion. Verse 22, Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. And my friends, God will. He will deal with the world just as He dealt with His chosen people. And as we talked about recently, our witness of warning goes back further than the Deuteronomy to the daughter of Zion. Ours goes back all the way, all the way to the seventh generation from Adam. When Jude tells us, Enoch, in that seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. All the way back to the seventh generation, Enoch spoke those words. Have we had sufficient warning? God lays it all out before us. Final thought. And we'll finish for tonight. The lamentations are not the stuff, obviously, of lighthearted or superficial reading. These pages are filled with deep pain and very heavy sorrow But as you read through them, they're strangely consoling. I found it, before I opened up, just be transparent here, before I opened up and really got into it, I thought, okay, how fast can we move through this? Can I do it all in one night? You know, can we just get done with this and move on to Ezekiel and some prophecy and some fun? How long? And as I've studied through and begun reading through Lamentations, and I encourage you to do this, chapter 1 through chapter 5, to start reading it you will be amazed at how much consolation and comfort. It's oddly soothing. It's kind of like, well, it's like the Wailing Wall. People go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They go to the Western Wall. The Jews don't even like to call it the Wailing Wall. But you know what happens when you go up to that wall? People are praying. And you see everybody from the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidic Jews, all the way to you know guys like me going, I stick a piece of paper in here, is that, I can do that? Is that alright? You with a funny hat, can I? And, but what's amazing is you stand there at that, at that wall and this wall that represents nothing but the loss and the pain and the horror of Israel for countless generations and there's peace and people go there for their comfort. And in the same way we come to the book of Lamentations and we find comfort here. There are arms here to hold us, even in the aches of life. Now, as I began, I shared that there's one possibility. 
of the location of the writing of these lamentations. Jeremiah up there on the eastern side of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, but there's a second possibility and I want you to consider it. can't say for sure either way. But the name Zion used 15 times in these songs originally applied specifically to the city of David, the whole thing of which was built on that one ridge in Jerusalem. To the right, you've got the Mount of Olives. To the left now, what they call Mount Zion, but it wasn't called that in the day, that ridge is Mount Moriah. And on that specific ridge, the city of David was built, the temple was built up above the city of David, but there was a higher point on that ridge beyond the temple to the north of the city. Zion, which was originally Mount Moriah in Jesus' day, that point north of the temple was Golgotha. And it's entirely possible that one of the two most likely overlooks for Jeremiah as he wrote Lamentations was not the Mount of Olives, but was actually Golgotha. That he sat there and he wept And I point that out because you will see throughout Lamentations amazing parallels between the death of the daughter of Zion and the death of the Son of God. Lamentations 2.15 reads, All who pass along their way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Matthew 27.39 says, And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Lamentations 3.30 Let him give his cheek to the smiter and let him be filled with reproach. Matthew 26.67 They spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and others slapped him. And they said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Isaiah did prophesy that. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Our hope is not in the daughter of Zion. Oh, we hope for the daughter of Zion. We pray as Steve did for the peace of Jerusalem. But our hope is in the Son of God. And it is the Son of God who bore the greatest sorrow. It is the Son of God who brings about the hope that hinges that that whole promise of Lamentations 3.31. The Lord will not reject forever. If He causes grief, He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus who took our sins, He took our sorrows, He took our aches upon Himself that He might show once and for all God's comfort in redemption and in salvation. And Jesus, we thank You for the comfort that only comes through You. We thank You, Lord, for the the consolation of Your Holy Spirit among us and working in us. We thank You that though there are days and weeks and even years, Lord, on this planet where we lament that there is comfort that soothes, arms that hold, a Father to whom we can pray, and a peace that is absolutely beyond comprehension. Lord, I pray as we pour over the Scriptures, as we consider the lamentations, that we would not be afraid of the house of sorrow, but would be a people considering our future and considering how You can better use us to bring the comfort of Your Spirit to a painful world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.